For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, attend a community meeting for Nigerian immigrants in Southern Arizona. Find out about Promorama, where volunteers help make girls' prom dreams come true. I'll have a conversation with linguistics professor, poet, and MacArthur fellow, Ophelia Zapeda. And drummer Sam Fogarino of the rock band Interpol talks about keeping the music fresh. That's next on Arizona Spotlight. That's a greeting in the Nigerian dialect Urubu, as delivered by Owen Mafemi. He's a 32-year resident of Tucson, and he's welcoming more than two dozen visitors to his living room for a quarterly meeting of the Urubu Isoko Organization, a gathering of Nigerian immigrants who now call Arizona their home. The meeting's purpose is to build friendship and a support network for the young professionals, seniors, and families who are in attendance. They share traditional food and the latest news from Nigeria, and I spoke to some of them about the ups and downs of life in the United States. My name is Emmanuel Ojamiraye. Until recently, when I retired, you know, I was a vice president for the International Foundation for Education and Self-Help. And uh, it's a non-profit organization based in uh, Scottsdale in Arizona. Mm -hmm. I've been here for, uh, with my family, we've been here for 13 years. Explain to the average American who doesn't understand what is the difference between the two major ethnic groups that are represented at this meeting today. But as a matter of fact, it's one group because historically we are one. But historically, we all come from one larger group called the Benin. You must have heard of the Benin Empire. So some 500 years ago, people migrated from Benin Empire. Some went to Insoko area, some went to Rubo area, you know, so that's how. So if you look at the languages, they are very, very similar. But some of the differences that cropped up later, they, they're due to politics, you know. Politicians, you know, want to carve territories for themselves. It's like what you call redistricting in America. So when they did some redistricting, <laughs> some time in the past, created more division. What's the area of Nigeria? How large is it? Uh, Nigeria is 924,000 <laughs> <laughs> square kilometers, okay. about 360,000 square miles. Yeah. Why do you feel that it's important for you to meet as a group like this? Well, uh, some of my colleagues will respond, but I think uh, one of the importance is that we want to be united. We come together like this, we share food, we eat together, and uh, fellowship, you know. Fellowship with one another, so that's uh, the, the basic understanding, and try to help with each other, each other where, where, where the need arises, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's it. My name is Mudia. I'm uh, a registered nurse, working in Scotia, Arizona, as a preoperative nurse. I work in the operating room. I've been here for about nine years. I'm happily married with three wonderful children, a, a girl and two boys. And uh, one of the reasons I'll say why we have this union is so that our children can know where they come from. That by coming to this meeting, it woven with the different people, seeing how we speak our language, they learn from it. They should know that they are not only just Americans, they are African Americans. So it is important for them to know that 
This is my ancestors. Unable to trace it back to Africa. Does anyone have something that they think most Americans don't know about the Nigerian legacy? Something that you wish people realized was part of what you're, you're doing here and what you're teaching your kids? There is something about with Nigerians. We love school. We love to read. We invest so much in education on our kids and ourselves. We spend most of our time and energy making sure our kids are well educated. Like some of them here now, you are going to see engineers, doctors, lawyers, everything among our kids here. So that is one of the interests we have as Nigerians. We want education to be number one in the life of our kids. We just love education. Nigerians are very friendly. Yeah. That's something I think Americans can benefit from. Yeah. We are very happy. The International Index of Happiness ranks Nigeria very high. Even when Nigerians are poor, when they don't have resources, they are happy people. In America, somebody may be very rich, but it's not happy internally. Nigerians are very happy internally. Uh, you know, so that's something you don't need to be very rich to be happy. Then that's something uh, I think Americans can learn from Nigerians. And, and you, sir? I also learned that the Nigerians are very smart people, and they are well-educated. They like to study. Nigerians don't want to be spoon-fed. Anywhere a Nigerian is, you will know that there is a Nigerian there because of his hard work. Um, my name is Felicia, but I go with all and Felicia when I'm in the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that one is my husband, Mudia. Yeah, I want America to know that what you see on television, children feeding on the trash, is not true. We don't feed on the trash. We don't de drink water from the gutter. We have tap, we have rivers, so we don't fit the way shown in television. Definitely not my country, Nigeria. Of course, like she said, we're not that poor in Nigeria. Like I was in class the other day, they said they want to donate shoes to Africa. We have shoes in Africa. If, if your country wants to help Nigeria, they should help technologically, not by giving us shoes. How old were you when you came to the United States? I just came to the United States. So what's your education in? MBA, Human Resources Management. Are you able to find work here? Have you found some place? Um, I'm not supposed to work outside school. Yeah. But that'll change later. Do you think you're going to have a fair shot? Of course, I should. I'm a Nigerian. I will make your way. We in Africa, when we come to America, we struggle to understand your language. So you should try to you should you should try to understand our accent as well. Because when I when I speak in class, they they don't understand me, but I try to understand it. So, well, I think your English is very good. That's funny. You said you think his English is very good. Yeah. I remember the first time I came to the U.S., um, I went to the community college to register for a class. And the lady, she told me, oh, your English is really good. And I wasn't sure what she meant. A couple of years later, I, I thought about it, and, and I realized, oh, she thought I just learned English. <laughs> <laughs> she thought I just learned English. At first, I just thought, said, what does that mean, your English is really good? I said, okay. Because even when I went to college, ASU. I had to take a class, um, English as a second language, <laughs> which is ridiculous because English is the official language of Nigeria. So, um, you know, we may speak it with a different accent, but English is English. So it's just, just a little story there for you. Yeah. <laughs> Owen Mafemi. Yes. How do you feel to have this meeting happening in your home? And, and what does it mean to be a part of this group for you? You know, most of us who are here, we don't even know ourselves before we came down here. 
But finding now that you know a lot of us here from the same place, you know, we feel you know that we've achieved something. They, they come because of love. When they come to visit, they come because of love, and we see ourselves as as a group, as one. So it's it's a very happy feeling. I have all of them here. You know, I've thanked them, and uh, you know, this is the way you know we are going to go. When you say goodbye to our listeners, say say somebody to the public radio listeners in your language. <laughs> in my language. <laughs> That's it. Can I get a round of applause from everybody? Thanks to the members of the Arubu Asoko Association of Arizona for sharing their opinions and letting us attend the meeting. We have photos and more of the story, including a way to contact the group, on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thousands of high school students in Tucson are preparing for that traditional teenage rite of passage, prom night. It can be a costly proposition. Dresses alone can cost hundreds of dollars, an expense that many families cannot afford. Next, Amanda LeClaire visits Prom-O-Rama, a volunteer effort that's helping make girls' prom dreams come true. So my sister and I were looking through a Mary Claire magazine back in like 2007 and we saw a program like this in another state where they helped girls find dresses and we thought how cool to make a program like that for girls in Tucson where they could come in and get free prom dresses. We just had no idea how to start it. I'm involved in over 70 high schools in the area and something that the high school seniors always talked about was that they couldn't really afford prom. So I started to think, well, what can we do? How can we figure this out? And one of my friends back in Tennessee had come up with an idea of doing a consignment sale. Years later, we saw Tucson College did an event called Promorama where they were letting girls sell dresses and we teamed up with them the following year and started giving our dresses away for free. I think it's really cute. They have lots of dresses here, so many of them. They're really pretty. And I just, I really think this is really thoughtful for them to do this. Um, for people to gather all the dresses up, it must take lots of work. And, you know, I, I appreciate that they did that. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, Melissa calls them fairy godmothers because of the Cinderella's closet, and the fairy godmothers are the ones who help each girl individually find a dress. We try to make it as individualized as possible. Last year, because we had an overwhelming number, um, I think we had probably about 450 people there to try on dresses. And so we didn't have enough volunteers, but this year, because we have more volunteers, we hope to make it more individualized so they can find the perfect dress. So you want this one, but this one fits you better. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I just really like them. So I like them both. We already, we've been here for hours, so. Yeah. Hours. <laughs> just like wrapping up now. It's too much fun to go everything. <laughs> what if I put is... one more dress in there? Which one would you choose? I don't know. Okay. Oh, I think you like that one. Out of I that, think I, out of this one? this one? Out of this uh, one, and two other dresses. Out of this one and two other dresses, which one would you pick? What's that? Out of this one and two other dresses, which one would you pick? Probably this one. <laughs> well, then there's your choice. <laughs> you made it. <laughs>
Um, it, I think it's called like a mermaid type dress and it has nice ripples and some fluffy things at the top. It's really pretty, it's long. Why did you choose this one? I picked it because, well, purple surrounds my life and it looks hot. <laughs> so, yeah. Both excellent reasons, I think, to pick a dress for prom, for sure. Definitely. Um, let me see. Um, I'm just having a good time, um, trying to have some new memories, having fun with my friends and stuff, yeah. Back in the 80s, you weren't allowed to go for single. You had to go with a date. So if you didn't have a date, we couldn't go. So I didn't have a date, so I didn't go. This is cool that the kids nowadays, they just go with a group of friends, and that was not how it was in the 80s, or at least at my high school in the 80s. Uh, so my dress is, it, it's not a very long one. It's a short, so kind of like to the knees. Um, black, um, almost very party-ish. Uh, maybe not something that you would normally wear at a prom. Um, I just, I really liked it. I was just like, oh man, I just gotta try it on. So when I looked at, um, when I saw it in the mirror, when I had it on, I was just like, this is the one, yeah. So I've been helping out all day, actually. My legs are pretty sore. <laughs> Why are you looking forward to prom? What do you think it's all about? Fun. Getting a time to hang out with your friends and not have any parents around or any adults, except for the principal or something. Is it about dressing up as well? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a matter of wearing a longer dress than a shorter dress. A longer dress, like um, a dress where you won't show anything bad. I, I really like the color. It's really simple. I'm not completely convinced about it, but I I love this color. This color is like my favorite color, springtime yellow. I'd either have to spend a ton of money or not go to prom, and I think it would be not go to prom um, because dresses are over a hundred dollars and um, they're pretty expensive. I'm very grateful. It's very. Um, it's a place where anybody can come to get a dress, and a lot of the dresses are beautiful, and it looks good on everybody, and um, yeah. For Arizona Spotlight, from the 2015 Promorama, I'm Amanda LeClaire. You can find out more about Promorama online at azpm.org. And remember, kids, prom responsibly. This is Arizona Spotlight. The MacArthur Fellowship Grant celebrates talent and creativity among academics, scholars, and artists. The more than $600,000 award was established in 1981, and each year around two dozen people receive the honor, sometimes called a genius grant. Five MacArthur honorees are among the faculty at the University of Arizona, and throughout the month of April, you'll be hearing conversations with them on Arizona's Spotlight. Next, I'll talk with linguistics professor and poet Ophelia Zepeda. A native Arizonan, she received her MacArthur Fellowship in 1999 for the study and preservation of her native language, Tohono O'odham. To begin our conversation, Zepeda reads a short poem, first in O'odham and then in English. <laughs> Bo 
It's going to rain. Someone said it's going to rain. I think it is not so because I have not yet felt the earth and the way that it holds still in anticipation. I think it is not so because I have not yet felt the sky become heavy with moisture of preparation. I think it is not so because I have not yet felt the winds move with their coolness. I think it is not so because I have not yet inhaled the sweet, wet dirt the winds bring. So, there is no truth that it will rain. Uh, this uh, poem comes from a, a little book called Jewet Ihoi, Earth Movement. And it was published in 1997 here in Tucson by an independent press called Cory Press. It's a little uh, bilingual collection, so all the pieces have an autumn and an English form. And it's also accompanied with a sound recording, a CD of the whole book, so that a person can listen to the autumn and the English as well. In the case of that particular poem, what's something that you felt that each language did differently, that each language could bring to the words of the poem, the intent? Mm -hmm. Dealing with the topic of, in this case, rain or weather or environmental um, uh, observations, I think other languages will have, I think, their own view of the environment and the events in them. So when you have different views of it, then the words are certainly going to be different and the, the concepts about uh, rain are going to be different as well. So certainly in, in my case, you know, living in a desert region, um, you want to anticipate rain, you know, because, of course, we need the rain. And it's always a very beautiful part of the desert when you do get rain. So the way that I speak about rain and the words that I use, which you see, you know, some of these words appearing in, say, autumn songs about rain, it's saying positive things, good things, you know, the way it smells, you know, it's, it's pleasant and, and uh, something you want. So I think that, you know, the, ch the words and the ideas and the concepts would vary from language and from culture to culture. Poetry is something that sometimes I don't think of as being part of my work, but in the end, it's always connected, especially because I use the autumn language and people are interested in, in the, the language when I read it. And so I, I need to be able to uh, explain things to them the poetry and the language work, um, they sort of mesh well. Uh, but at times, like I said, I separate them. Otherwise, I can't find time, you know, to do it, mm -hmm. to do one justice. How significant was it for you to be chosen to receive the MacArthur Fellowship when, uh, when you got that call in 1999? Yeah, it was very significant because in my case, I've known people 
other people who have gotten it. And these are people that I, I uh, place in very high regard. You know, my friend and colleague, Gary Knappen, you know, he received one, and I know his work. I've known for a long time, and, and so you sort of, you know, have a tendency to compare yourself to sort of the range of work he does and the variety of work he does. So you think, you know, yours isn't comparable. And so that's why it's such a, it's such a surprise um, when your work uh, and the impact uh, that you've made along the way is acknowledged and, and rewarded in this way. And so it is a tremendous surprise. You know, it's interesting in the end to, to find out, as they say, you know, they sort of watch your career develop and so forth and, and try and get a sense of, of where you're heading. You know, so they're kind of looking at a crystal ball about you or something. Yeah. So that's what I, at least that's what I learned mm-hmm. uh, once I was awarded. So, was there a particular project that you were then able to do once with the uh, the backing of that MacArthur mm-hmm. Fellowship that you had very much wanted to accomplish? Mm-hmm. There were a few. Um, some of them we I had gotten external funds for to have the MacArthur Fellowship and have that recognition and your status, you know, move, you know, very quickly in lots of different circles. Um, So it was not necessarily easier, but people listened to you, especially when you were um, seeking funding for some of the projects that you were, are being recognized for. And um, I was able to supplement projects that were funded by, by other sources. I primarily was interested in supporting graduate students, um, Native American graduate students to work with me on some of these projects where, you know, they weren't written into the grant or we needed additional help. I had, you know, sort of the the luxury of, of choosing the people, you know, to work with me. So that was uh, very nice, which is it's difficult to do as, as regular faculty, you know, to try and support your own student. You're constantly finding monies somewhere or here. You know, I was given money and I could use however I wanted. That was linguist and poet Ophelia Zepeda. The rock band Interpol was formed in 1997, and its electric stage presence helped make it one of the most popular bands on the New York club scene. Each of Interpol's five studio albums has garnered critical and commercial success. The most recent, El Pintor, came out last fall and signaled the end of a self-imposed two-year hiatus. Interpol's three core members spent the time with their families and worked on other projects. The band is playing Tucson next week, and Sandra Westall talked with drummer Sam Fogarino about how they're measuring and enjoying their current success. The album has more in common with earlier aspects of the band, kind of coupled with the added experience of it being our fifth record. I, I like this, this it's, it's not about just one song, it's about the whole body of work that you're representing when you're touring and stuff. I'm just pretty excited about the, the whole record. What that does when you're playing every night, it kind of refuels the songs that you've played for your whole career. 
fact that you're kind of high on your most current body of work. Nothing really that we're consciously trying to bring back. I think it just kind of happens, especially with the way the newer songs are voiced. That's one thing that kind of harkens back to the earlier records where there's a simplicity to it and it's not too overwrought. And, you know, there's not too many voices added after the fact. A simple guitar record with some embellishment. There's that thing of maybe writing a hit that might be uh, calculated to reach the masses, and I don't think that's someplace we're at. But then you don't want to stagnate at the same time, so you just hope that you maintain what you already have while trying to build upon reaching a new audience. It's a balance between trying to calculate that while just really remaining honest. Back in the early days, the one thing I do remember is, you know, always feeling like you're going to fall off the edge. And now it's just way more kind of commanded. It's kind of just, you know, simply just getting better at what you do and having more control over it. She said you don't need time, We're all harder on ourselves than we were 10 years ago. I think there's always something to kind of refine after every show. I think if you talk to each of us individually, everybody would be kind of happy over a great audience, but we'll still critique the performance, you know, to no end. What excited me from the beginning is just the energy of, of the audience kind of coming back at you. The fact that, you know, people are there to see you perform. That was Sam Fogarino, the drummer for Interpol. The band is taking the stage at the Rialto Theater on Wednesday at 8 p.m., then traveling on to Tempe to play a show on Sunday. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can now find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. Production assistance by Caitlin Dean. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.